Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's still Halloween season, so we're going into the anthology territory. That's right. We have a long tradition here on Stuff to Blow Your Mind of taking short, spooky stories around this time of year, uh, snipping them out of their host, drying them, and then stuffing them with science to create an informative and entertaining Halloween sausage. Uh, we did this for a few years based on creepy pasta stories, and then we kind of felt like that well was running a little dry, so we turned to an even richer and deeper treasure trove of horror fiction, and that is horror and sci-fi anthology series. Uh, a lot of these are shows that aired on TV. A lot of them are also films that feature uh, you know, several different stories in an anthology format. And there's just a, a tremendous amount out there. We're, we're talking the likes of The Twilight Zone, The Outer Limits, Tales from the Dark Side, Tales from the Crypt, Monsters, Black Mirror, and just so many, many more. Uh, plus, there's the highly popular Simpsons Treehouse of Horror episodes, uh, as well as various, again, cinematic horror anthologies such as The Vault of Horror. So this is going to be volume four, and then we're going to do volume five this year. Uh, we did volume one in 2018. We did volumes two and three in 2019. So we're continuing the tradition. And uh, and again, yeah, I just have to say there's just so much out there in terms of horror and sci-fi anthology television. Uh, and then there's this an additional ton of horror and sci-fi anthology cinema. So once again this year, I found myself just combing through contenders that I'd either forgotten about, was half aware of, or just had flat never heard of. Uh, like a lot in horror, especially, I feel like the horror anthology genre tends to feel like low-hanging fruit. Uh, but, but the kicker is that when well done, there's nothing else quite like it. Well, yeah, I think that's true. I mean, it, there's almost an ancient memory aspect to a horror anthology because it feels like people sitting around a campfire going around the, the circle, each taking a turn to tell a story. Yeah, and uh, like the literary short story provides wonderful opportunities that full-length or episodic mediums don't provide. Like a lot of times you can really put a particular idea in the forefront. You can put a particular twist in the forefront, uh, and it can work better than it would if you tried to to build an entire you know uh, TV series around this or an entire uh, feature-length film around this. I was actually just thinking the other day about the the good things about having a, a short format for horror because uh, we watched a new horror movie that came out this year. It was a Shutter original film called Host. It was mm -hmm. a, like a Zoom horror movie. It takes place <laughs> entirely on Zoom, but characters do a seance and there's demonic shenanigans. And the movie is about an hour long. And I thought that worked fantastically because it's, you know, it's not a super deep film. It's not especially like thoughtful or interesting, but just for an excellent little boo frolic, an hour is a perfect length. Uh, and, and I wish more horror movies would just kind of embrace that and say, no, we're not going to be as long as it's supposed to be. We're not going to pad this out to 86 minutes. We're going to be an hour long. I mean, if, if it's good enough for attack of the crab monsters, an hour runtime is good enough for you. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I definitely thought about that when I rewatch, when I well, watched for the first time, uh, Frankenstein and bride of Frankenstein, like just shorter format, but man, they got everything in. So yeah, if you're a horror director out there, don't worry about padding it out. I mean, if your movie's only 54 minutes long, I think that's great. Now, you mentioned Zoom-based uh, horror 
uh, earlier. Uh, mm-hmm. in, in a bit, later on in the episode, we're going to discuss an episode of the 1990s revival of The Outer Limits. I want to mention that there. this is not the episode we're going to be talking about, but there is an episode called um, Dead Man Switch that's, that's extremely good. And it has to do with individuals, uh, humans that are put into uh, separate bunkers uh, during an alien invasion. And each one is functioning as a dead man switch for the planetary defense system. But the fun thing about it is all these people are solely communicating with each other via this, like, you know, uh, uh, closed network uh, television, basically a Zoom scenario. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a very interesting piece to watch uh, during this time of increased uh, Zoom meetings, etc. All right, well, let's just jump right in here to our first uh, selection. This is from the 1982 horror anthology film Creepshow. Uh, this is The Lonesome Death of Geordie Verrill. All right, so sidebar before we get started on the plot, this segment stars Stephen King in the flesh. He's the actor in it. So I've got to ask, what are your favorite Stephen King acting spots? And and I'll announce mine. He's got a cameo in a movie called Sleepwalkers. If you've never seen it, I think it came out in the 80s or early 90s, and it is about shape-shifting cat demon things that suck the life essence out of young women and then uh, i think they can turn invisible they can like look like different things and their weaknesses that if they're attacked by cats they die Uh, (laughs) but anyway in sleepwalkers there is an amazing scene that features a cameo by stephen king as a perturbed cemetery caretaker who is uh, angry that that perverts keep coming into his cemetery at night but it also contains cameos by Toby Hooper and Clive Barker. <laughs> oh, I love it when you, when you have scenes like that. And that's a fitting, like, grisly cameo for, for Stephen King. Um, because I remember, probably during, like, the height of my, my, my young obsession with Stephen King novels, uh, the, the TV series Golden Years came out, which I don't think is anybody's favorite a Stephen King project. I don't think they ever finished it. You know, it, it went maybe a season, maybe less than a season. But I remember I don't think there I being. Know what it is. <laughs> oh, it, it's like a goodness. I'm having a hard time even remembering what the, the the gist of it was. A man aging rapidly, I think, or aging backwards. One of the two. Mm-hmm. Um, it had it, the, one of the best things about it was it had David Bowie's uh, "Golden Years" as the theme music. Oh, okay. But there's a scene where Stephen King shows up. As a um, as a bus driver, and at the time I was like, "This is amazing!" That's Stephen. He's the author, and he's the bus driver. Um, of course, he would go on to have so many more interesting <laughs> cameos and things. Um, for instance, I never saw this, but he has a pretty wacky one in the TV version of The Shining. He's this band leader, like this really um, energetic band, big band leader with a pencil thin mustache. Uh, he looks fabulously greased back hair. Got a pencil mustache. That that is not a good look for Stephen King. <laughs> I don't know. You know, he's, he kind of has the like the, the the face for for facial hair, though. He he can make most of it work. I feel it like, kind of works. It I think he works. does better full beard. I mean, <laughs> full beard. He looks appropriately shaggy and kind of writerly. With the pencil mustache, he looks like maybe he would be the guy who would be discovered in the cemetery. <laughs> now, uh, in terms of just his acting roles go, like. 
things where he's not just a cameo, but he's actually playing a, a bit part. Uh, he had a really fun one in the biker drama Sons of Anarchy uh, several years back. Uh, he played a guy who makes bodies disappear. So he's you know just kind of this stern but creepy guy in a, in a basement that will uh, you know make that make that body disappear when you need it to. And he insists on listening to eighties music while it happens. <laughs> well, I've never seen that either, but but I'll have to look it up. All right. Well, let's get into to Creep Show here. So, Creep Show for anyone who's not familiar with it was uh, Stephen King and George Romero's tribute to pre-code horror comics of old. Uh, I think I may have covered the crate in a in a previous episode. I'm not sure, uh, but. It has some wonderful segments, but they're all like sort of mean, uh, grisly uh, uh, segments that are, you know, very much in the the vein of classic tales from the crypt and so forth, where uh, there are bad people that do bad things and get their comeuppance, usually in grisly ways with a little bit of uh, gallows humor thrown in. And like we said, not only is this written by Stephen King, but this segment also stars the author as well. Uh, again, it's The Lonesome Death of Jordy Verrill, and it's uh, a little bit The Color Out of Space and a little bit The Blob. Mm-hmm. It's about a redneck who comes in contact with space goo. Uh, then after coming co- in contact with space goo, some sort of alien plant or plant-like organism takes over his body, and then he makes the terrible mistake of climbing into a hot bath to ease his discomfort. The alien uh, plant infection overtakes him, and he ends up uh, following Papa Hemingway into the sunset. Uh, (laughs) Then we hear on the TV that rainy weather is moving in, which will spread, no doubt, spread the alien plants even wider across the earth. You know, this connects to several other horror stories uh, in interesting ways. One that I didn't think of until just now is the way that it connects to, especially the late 1970s remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is very good, and mm-hmm. which characterizes the the spores that come down and possess the, the humans and turn them into the, the replicants. Uh, they're very plant-like. I mean, obviously, they're not from Earth, so they're not exactly of the kingdom of the plants, but there's clearly a similarity with plants and an affinity for plants among the aliens. And the ending of the Geordie Verrill segment makes me think very much of the beginning of the uh, the Invasion of the Body Snatchers remake. Because in the opening credits of the Body Snatchers remake, there is this sequence that just kind of shows these filaments almost blowing in the wind. And mm-hmm. it, it accomplishes a very sinister visual connotation without any words or any explanation just of the idea of biological material kind of drifting and through through the air through space carried on currents of various kinds yeah and of course we can instantly think to other sort of plant-based horror uh, properties such as uh, day of the triffids which we've mentioned on here before that's a big one about plant uh, plant like aliens overtaking the earth or troll too that's right that's right so this Jordy uh, Viral episode, it, it raised the question for me. Are there any plants that can grow on or in the human body uh, under, you know, sort of normal circumstances? Because obviously, like, a dead body filled with dirt, yeah, you could grow some some plants in that. If you had some sort of a, you somehow had a, an outfit that had, like, lots of dirt pockets, you could grow, <laughs> grow it that way. Uh, also wanted to, you know, avoid discussing bacteria and fungi, sticking to just good old plants. Uh, which, again, seems more in line with the plant-like organisms that, uh, that we're dealing with in this short. Um, and we're not counting things that might look like plants, but are, in fact, tumors or what have you. So, for the most part, 
plants don't want to be on us or inside us, unless, of course, their seeds are traveling on our hair or garments, or if their seeds are traveling through our digestive systems. Otherwise, there's just not much of an end game going on with the inside of the human body or even like on the exterior of the human body. Uh, you know, seeds need to get in the dirt. But sometimes things go wrong, uh, as re- <laughs> horribly wrong. As reported in 2010 by uh, the BBC and various other outlets, a man named Ron Svedin, I believe, uh, had been battling emphysema, and he underwent an X-ray as his condition worsened. The doctors then discovered that a pea had gone down the wrong, uh, uh, you know, the wrong pipe and sprouted in the warm, moist environment of the patient's lung. It had uh, only grown a half an inch long, uh, but uh, you know, still, it was enough to cause some concern. Surgeons removed it, uh, and, uh, and we should stress here that what was happening is that the pea was sprouting as if it were uh, under the soil, reaching up for sunlight. Thus, it grew in the darkness of the human body as if it were going to sprout out of the body and find the sun. Now, in energy terms, it couldn't keep growing like that forever, right? Because eventually it would need sunlight in order to supply new energy. But, of course, a a pea, like many other, uh, you know, like the yolk of an egg or something, has some chemical energy built into it that can propel that initial sprouting from the dark place. Uh, fortunately, it, it would probably eventually not be able to find sunlight, but it still would, I guess, be some kind of gross thing in your lungs. So it's a good thing they took it out. But in the spirit of of making the familiar strange, I, I think we should dwell for a minute on the idea of seeds using bodies such as human bodies for dispersal. We don't dwell on this as a parallel to any kind of botanical body horror because it just seems so normal. Well, yeah, you know, sometimes you just eat fruit with seeds in it. But this is really kind of strange the more you think about it. So, of, of course, there are evolutionary pressures on plants that cause them to find methods of seed dispersal, not just to produce seeds of, of, for a new generation of plants, but to try to get them physically away from the parent. And, uh, and this is because like the kin-shared genes of the parent and offspring plants don't want to be forced to compete directly with one another for resources. And these resources would include soil space, water... Uh, nutrients in the soil, access to sunlight. If you can get the kids out of the house, that's good because then you're not fighting over food. And competition of this kind can be reduced by dispersing seeds. And nature, of course, has lots of ingenious solutions for this. We've talked about some on the show before. For example, you know, uh, uh, all the different structures, the parachute or wing-like structures that uh, seeds sometimes sprout in order to ride on the wind to, or to drift like the, uh, like the filaments in, in Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And there are even exploding seed pods like you would find on the sandbox tree or Hura crepitans. And so this is a tree that has thorns all over its trunk. I think I've read somewhere that it's called the uh, the monkey can't climb it tree. And it produces seed pods that look kind of like tiny pumpkins. And they explode when they're ripe, literally explodes in a ballistic propulsion of seeds up to distances of like 100 meters away, according to some reports. But also, as you mentioned earlier, a lot of seeds rely on animals to be dispersed, and this is known as zoochory. Uh, so there's epizoochory, which is the transport of seeds on the outside of the animal. So you think of like the burrs that get stuck on a dog's fur or stuck to your socks. Uh, one example of this is the burdock plant, which was apparently the inspiration behind the invention of Velcro, invention of the loop and fastener 
uh, system. But then there's also, of course, what's known as endozoochory, the transport of seeds inside of the animal. And this usually involves creating a tasty fruiting body containing the seed, waiting to get eaten, traveling around inside an animal's digestive system, then being released in the animal's feces to grow in a new place. And so if you eat some tasty blackberries, you are in a way Jordy Verrill. You are the host of this plant that is using your digestive system using and your, your legs, your mobile body, in the dispersal of seeds as part of its reproductive cycle. In fact, there are even some seeds that are somewhat obligate in this way. They need to be primed to grow inside an animal's digestive system. Uh, blackberries would be an example, which I think usually need some time in a bird's gizzard before they will grow. But all the stories you read of like, oh, okay, well, you know, my, my cousin knows a guy who swallowed a watermelon seed and it grew a watermelon inside his stomach. That That's not true. I, I could not find any evidence that anything like that ever happens. But... Uh, while it's unlikely that you would grow a plant from a seed in your body while you are alive, could it happen after you're dead? Uh, again, you mentioned earlier, Rob, that if a, a seed was maybe in your pockets and your pockets were full of soil, it could grow out of that. But could it actually grow from inside your body? Well, I could not find a verified example of this. I found a disputed claim about a fig tree that grew out of a murdered man's stomach in a cave in Cyprus. Uh, but it looks like that that account is uh, has, has generally been refuted. But... I was reading an article that talks about that that rumored story in Live Science by Laura Gegel, and the author here consulted a soil science professor from Oregon State University named Jay Noller, and it was Noller's opinion that such a thing is actually plausible. He said that seeds can sometimes emerge from dead animals, so he imagines they could likewise emerge out of a dead human. Um, but he said it wouldn't have to be in their stomach. It could actually grow from any part of the dead person's digestive tract. It could be in their large intestine, small intestine. And the way it breaks down would work like this. So you'd have a dead decaying body all around the plant seed that would sort of help it out with nutrients, uh, very possibly with the third party of fungus involved. So microscopic fungi in the soil would help decompose the dead body, break down, you know, the, the fungus would break down fats and proteins into simpler constituent nutrients. And then the fungus would share these nutrients with nearby plants, possibly even seeds that are among the decaying organic material of the body in a symbiotic relationship. So they would exchange uh, simple sugars that the plant produces for these nutrients that they're getting from decomposing the body. But I wanted to think about another way of possibly framing infection by an alien plant, apart from directly becoming the host or substrate of the plant itself. And that's the idea of infection via a plant vector, or to put it as a question, would you let a zucchini flower cough in your mouth? <laughs> and I was looking around for, for answers to this question, uh, can you get infected from a plant? And uh, I found an article by a plant pathologist and diagnostician at Iowa State University named Dr. Lena Rodriguez-Salamanca. And she said that sometimes her lab receives questions from the public, including the question of, can I catch an infectious disease from a plant? The answer is, in most cases, no. You know, pathogens that are specialized to infect plants, and of course there are many of these, plants can be infected by fungi, by viruses, by bacteria, just like animals can. But usually a pathogen that is specialized for one kingdom of life is not just going to jump 
you know, from that one into another kingdom of life and infected. It is not adapted to that. But uh, there are cases of a few known opportunistic pathogens that will make this jump. Uh, And this is especially true for people with compromised immune systems. So one example is an infectious bacterium known as a Pseudomonas aeruginosa. And uh, Rodriguez Salamanca says that it can cause a weak, soft rot on plants such as lettuce. And this bacterium has been known to jump the kingdom barrier and sometimes infect people with compromised immune systems. This can lead to infections of the urinary tract, of the lungs, the blood, and wounds, including burns. But for most people, it does not represent a threat. But then there are other ones. For example, there is a fungal infection uh, caused by the fungus Sporothrix shankii, which thrives on the dead thorns of a rose stem. And this has given rise to the name rose picker's disease or rose handler's disease. So if you're handling a rose and you you know get pricked by one of these dead thorns that has the fungal infection or get a scratch this way, the fungus can get into your skin and potentially into your lymph system. And apparently you can also inhale spores of this fungus. And uh, this can cause all kinds of problems, infections of the skin, of course, but of the eyes, the lungs, the nervous system, bones and joints. And then finally, she mentions that there are infectious agents of plants that can produce secondary byproducts that are harmful to humans. And she gives the example of fungi that attack corn. Uh, The phrase she used specifically is ear rots, which is a new sort of words quick for me. Uh, But this includes the genus Fusarium. And these fungi produce secondary mycotoxins, including, quote, Fumonisins, Zearalinone, and the aptly named Vomitoxin, which, yes, that, that <laughs> is what it sounds like. And, of course, these are byproducts that can affect you in all kinds of ways. Uh, she talks about how most of the things like this, like uh, like Aspergillus flavus also is a, is a contaminant that you could find in grains uh, that produces secondary mycotoxins. A lot of these things that produce these secondary mycotoxins that can harm you would be found specifically not in, like, leafy plants like lettuce, but on grains. And uh, she, she mentions, you know, you don't need to be too worried because, like, grain producers monitor for the presence of these organisms. So, yes, it is, in fact, possible for a human to catch a disease from a plant, much in the same way that we could catch a disease from a mosquito or a bat. But fortunately, it's not very common. All right. With that, we're going to go ahead and close the book on Jordy Verrill. And I think we're going to go ahead and take our first break. Uh, But when we come back, we will unlock another entry in horror anthology history. All right, we're back. Is it time to go to the Outer Limits? Yeah, let's go to the Outer Limits. Uh, So I mentioned that we would be looking at an episode from the 90s uh, revival of the Outer Limits. Um, Not to be confused with the original series from the the 1960s. Uh, This is a series that ran 1995 through 2002. Now, I watched a few of these on TV back in the day, but uh, via Amazon Prime Watch Party, uh, we've been watching an episode a week with a couple of friends. And I have to say, the 90s Outer Limits has everything I love. You got really cool sci-fi concepts. You have great monster makeup, uh, a little 90s cheesiness uh, uh, 
sprinkled in there, and some really fun performances as well, sometimes by people you've, you've never heard of, but oftentimes by people that, that went on to have uh, you know, key roles in, um, in, in various uh, sci-fi properties or uh, you know, they, did, they did additional television work. Uh, so you never know who you're going to get. Like, for instance, I haven't watched this yet, but there's an episode where Gary Busey shows up playing a televangelist. Oh, there's a, one where Michael Ironside shows up playing a mutant. Uh, it's, <laughs> you just never know who's going to be in there. Yeah, there's a lot of, oh, that guy in it. Yeah, basically name an actor who was doing TV during this period of time, and there's a great chance that they were on an episode of The Outer Limits. So during the outer the 90s Outer Limits run, they did 152 episodes. That's compared to 49 episodes from the original 1960s series. And again, I certainly haven't watched them all, uh, but this is a really good one we're going to be talking about. It's an episode that is probably a bit heavy-handed, as <laughs> these sort of things tend to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is also rather pronounced as it was essentially a 1998 commentary about climate change denialism. That's very early. Yeah, yeah, um, you know, earlier than say an inconvenient truth and uh, mm-hmm. and, and the like. But uh, we'll get into some like the basic where it fits into the basic timeline of uh, of climate change understanding here shortly. Uh, but but first of all, just so everyone can find it, if you're interested in watching it, it's titled "To Tell the Truth," and it was written by Lawrence Myers and directed by uh, Neil Fernley. It stars Gregory Harrison as Dr. Larry Chambers. You may remember Gregory Harrison from uh, you know, various TV shows. I think he was like, like on Trapper John MD or something um, <laughs> and uh, you know, various other shows. Uh, yeah, he kind, plays of a, a, kind of a soap opera vibe. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, uh, and, and in this, he plays a terraforming botanist on the off-world colony of Janus 5. And I love how perfectly on the nose that the title is, uh, I mean, the name of the colony uh, and or planet is. Because this is an episode that is concerned with truth, denial, and the mistrust of information. Yes, and it has uh, characters whose faces change and who are not what they seem. Yeah. So here's the deal. The the Janus 5 colony is going pretty well. It has a bright future. But Dr. Chambers is concerned by some of the geologic evidence, Uh, geologic evidence that includes the remnants of an extinct, shape-shifting alien civilization. But five years ago, he got it really wrong. He predicted uh, cycl- a cyclical catastrophe, uh, and, and he thought it was going to be a volcanic t- catastrophe. But then this didn't come to fruition. Now he's come to believe that the cyclical threat that uh, is facing this planet is actually solar, and that, in another, and that another devastating solar storm is just on the horizon. So he urges that the colony be moved or even evacuated. Yeah, there's a great fake out beginning where a couple of characters appear to be looking out a window and then they see the sky. It fills with these shimmering auroras and that turns into fire everywhere. And you you think, oh, no, uh, our, our main character is going to be killed right at the beginning. But no, it turns out it is a simulation they're looking at. But I was wondering why, why if they're simulating the future of the climate or they're simulating uh, solar activity, does it create a video display of what it's simulating would happen? I don't know. I guess it's just a robust simulation um, package they have there. Yeah, that's a really good simulation. Usually <laughs> simulations spit out like some numbers. Yeah. <laughs> this um, one does a full like, I'll give you, I'll give you a movie. <laughs> 
So, I mean, I guess it's all about, you know, creating something, you know, visual that, of course, the audience can get into, but also these colonists, because even sympathetic members of the colony have their doubts about Dr. Chambers. After all, he got it wrong once before, and then there's this added detail that he recently lost his wife, and then even went missing for a couple of weeks in the in the wilderness. So, this there's this lingering question, can he be trusted? Is he acting out of sort of just nihilistic, hatred for the colony. Uh, plenty of, and also just plenty of the colonists don't want to go through all of this again. And the higher-ups also have a lot invested in the situation. One thing I think this episode models extremely well is that when the character... So Dr. Chambers is trying to convince these characters that his simulation is correct. And when characters find the implications of his conclusions unpalatable, like, well, they don't want to have to move or, you know, whatever, it's not in their interest to try to evacuate. Most of the substance of their disagreement is not really about what he's saying, but it's about him as a person. So they say, like, you've got a psychological reason that you would make all this stuff up. You know, they start, like, talking about his personal history and attacking his character and saying, who is this guy? Can we really trust him? Very reminiscent of how similar debates in reality play out. Uh, but also, I've just got to say, one of my favorite parts of this episode was the repeated threatening visits from this guy named Finton, who <laughs> has just really got it out for Dr. Chambers. He seems to be a neighbor of his who is some kind of security employee, uh, but he, he looks basically like a diminutive evil Ken Bone. Yeah, I, I loved Fenton in this because he's, I mean, he, he, he works, he's a, he's a character, but he also, you know, he's not particularly threatening, and mm-hmm. he does, he also has a great toady vibe to him. Like, yeah. I'm totally buying that in this off-world colony where uh, where it's later explained that, you know, a lot of people go here that didn't have a shot at ascending uh, into the, uh, you know, into, into, into higher uh, levels back on Earth. Mm-hmm. Like, this is their shot. And you totally buy Fenton as a guy who, you know, probably wouldn't be head of security. Security or a major security player anywhere else, but here on on Janus Five, he's got a shot. Well, even on Janus Five, he's not the head of security. He answers no. to the guy <laughs> with the beard. I can't remember what yep. that guy's name is, uh, but yeah, he's he's some kind of cop or something. But it was just really funny how he repeatedly shows up to be like this threatening figure, but he's this cute little nerd. <laughs> Now, um, the key individual here, like the key antagonist, uh, I would guess you would, would call him, is uh, the head of the colony, Franklin Murdoch. And he's played by the terrific William Atherton. Now, Atherton is best known for playing, uh, first, there's a character in Die Hard named uh, Thornburg. Mm. But most famously, I think, he played Walter Peck in 1984's Ghostbusters. He... He was a just a perfect 1980s weasel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he has a special knack, I think, for playing arrogant bureaucrats. So in Die Hard, he's a sleazy, opportunistic reporter. And in, <laughs> uh, in Ghostbusters, he plays the, the, the villainous EPA agent. Yeah, yeah, which is... Which is is always weird now when I rewatch uh, Ghostbusters and think about Ghostbusters because yeah he is just played as like a straight 
uh, villain or at least a sub-villain in the film, despite representing the you know now embattled U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, which is is there to especially in in the film, like he's acting to protect uh, New York City from uh, environmental damage from from things like unlicensed uh, nuclear accelerators and and this uh, containment system that even Egon describes as something that can't be turned off without quote dropping a bomb on the city. <laughs> I mean, I think there are a couple of ways you could read that. Of course, I, I love Ghostbusters, and the character mm-hmm. is very funny. Uh, you could read it as that the politics of the movie are conservative. That's one way. Another way of reading it is just that, like, this is a comedy where the protagonists are are dangerously irresponsible people, and I, th- right. I guess that's sort of true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly, like, if you really analyze the character of Peter Venkman, <laughs> um, you know, how, how likable is he, really? Uh, but, you know, Bill Murray... He he makes it work. Yeah, he does. He does. Now, uh, 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 again, now now Peck in Ghostbusters is definitely an arrogant jerk. I don't want to get past that point. Mm-hmm. And Atherton brings some of that same energy to this performance, but this time he is definitely the face of anti-environmental forces. Uh, and I think he's he's actually well presented here. Instead of being just a, a pure money grubbing heel, uh, Murdoch is presented as being someone who opposes Chambers. For several reasons. Mm-hmm. So first of all, Murdoch has a position of power and importance here on the colony that he would never have achieved on Earth. He has this this really nice little monologue where he talks about it. I think he's talking, is he, no, he's not talking to Fenton, he's talking to another character uh, that we'll uh, mention in a little bit. Uh, also, Murdoch, like all the other colonists, has an, an economic stake in the colony's success. Uh, but he also stresses that this does not rank above the importance of his own life. Murdoch, seemingly quite authentically in one of these scenes, proclaims that also Janus 5 is his home and he doesn't want to leave it. So he has that, um, you know, tying him to the current situation. And then finally, he he is concerned that as convincing as Chambers may be, uh, he has been wrong before and he might be wrong again for very human reasons. I mean, this episode actually, like like you're suggesting, raises a lot of very interesting and legitimate real life concerns about say how to communicate scientific conclusions that would motivate action in the real world because there are a lot of difficulties there but i mean one of the difficulties i think is that science unlike most other epistemological methods is very upfront about uncertainty so like mm-hmm. it builds in the fact that like you know uh, i i'm trying to tell you that this is a conclusion with x probability instead of just saying like here's how it is and it turns out that even though that is probably the best method that you can use for actually figuring out what's true it is not particularly convincing to motivate people to do things that they don't want to do otherwise right because it's like oh wait a minute you're acknowledging you're not certain then you know how can then how can we make all these costly decisions on the basis of your conclusion yeah yeah i mean like there's a there's a, a line in there where one of the columns is saying you're asking us to ruin our lives again like you've already done it once before and now you're asking to do it again and 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 we can't even be certain about it as a brief aside about the uh the scientific premise of the episode i i was interested in chambers suggestion that so what happens on on janus 5 on the planet is that chambers believes every 1000 years 
basically the planet is sterilized and nearly all life is wiped out by solar activity that that just bombards the surface of the planet with radiation and uh and and you know wipes everything clean and then life has to bounce back and i was wondering wait a minute how would it be possible for complex life to even evolve on such a planet? And I was trying to, I was trying to make it work. One way I thought of is, well, maybe years are longer on Janus five than they are on earth. So a thousand years is actually a much longer period. Uh, so I, I was looking at, you know, what's a, what's a planet that has a really long orbital period in our solar system. Neptune takes 165 years to orbit the sun. So if Janus is like Neptune, then a thousand Janus years would be 165,000 Earth years. But the crazy thing is that's still the blink of an eye in evolutionary time. Uh, and sometimes it can be hard to put that in perspective. But if you consider it like this, so uh, the if the evolution of life on Earth fits into, you know, we don't know exactly when the first cells arose or, or the uh, chemical evolution that gave rise to the first cells happened. But if you put it in basically the last four billion years, more than 24,000 periods of 165,000 years could fit into that. Uh, so it makes you think, well, if you were going to take this premise seriously, that somehow complex life evolves on a planet that is sterilized every thousand years or so, either that sterilization has to be taken into account in the biology of the life that evolves. Like it goes dormant somehow to avoid the mm -hmm. sterilization. Uh, and that possibility I think is raised in the episode or it evolves at rates that are, that are unthinkable given the kind of evolution we understand here on earth. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, you know, I, I, it's it's a very thoughtful show, even with its occasional hokiness, you know, and and necessary leaps in uh, you know in, in the fantastic. Uh, but but yeah, it's interesting to think about the idea of say comparing it to say uh, organisms that that depend on cyclical forest fires as mm. uh, just part of the environment that they live in. That's a very good point of comparison, and actually, a similar idea comes up in the Three Body Problem by Si Chin Lu. Oh yeah, that's right. I've, in the uh, the simulation that they're uh, working with, right, with the the, the 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 world with multiple suns. Right. The idea is that uh, there there are unpredictable times when the environmental conditions of their home planet become basically unsurvivable, and the aliens have to disappear, have to sort of like go into a hibernation or dehydration state in order to just like ride out the uninhabitable period and then reemerge once the planet becomes uh, less hostile. So this is the basic setup for the the episode, and I want to stress here. By the way, we're in the, since we're in the audio realm, uh, Janus Five, the, the name of the colony. This is this is not Janus like the uh, uh, as in Janet or, or anything. This is a, the the two faced god, and so that's sort of the <laughs> right not the, the on the nose, yeah. <laughs> So uh, from anyway, anyway, from here the episode you know takes a couple of I thought really satisfying twists and turns. I don't want to spoil too much in this episode in case you want to want to see it for yourself, and I recommend you do. But let's just say that some folks are accused of being shape shifting aliens that survived, <laughs> uh, you know, like by living in the the depths of the earth or something, um, and we're forced to wonder if Chambers will be proven right or wrong, and what it will mean for the people of the colony. Right. Now, again, this episode is an obvious treatment on the, of the dangers of climate change and the role that climate change denialism plays in our society. Uh, to put everything in a in an historical framework, the greenhouse effect was described by French physicist Joseph Fourier in 1824. 
Uh, BBC has a nice breakdown of key moments after that in a brief history of climate change, uh, which brings up everything. It brings up everything through 2013 because you know that's that's when the, the timeline came out. But it's a, a nice handy reference point for some of the the uh, the stuff we're talking about here. But to hit a few key points from the later 20th century, uh, U.S. scientist uh, Wallace uh, Brocker put the term global warming in the title of a science paper popularizing the term. And in 1987, the Montreal Protocol came into effect to protect the ozone layer. And in 1988, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change formed to collate and assess the evidence. And of course, the IPCC continues to collect and assess the the evidence on on the state of climate change uh, even today I, I think their most recent major uh, update and report was in like 2013 2014 it was the the fifth assessment report and it, it paints a pretty dire picture now one thing that this uh, BBC timeline also points out and this is something that Carl Sagan wrote about in the demon haunted world as well uh, Margaret Thatcher gave a speech to the UN in 1989 and urged a global treaty stating quote we are seeing a vast increase in the amount of carbon dioxide reaching the atmosphere and then she goes on to uh, to point out that the the future changes will quote likely be more fundamental and more widespread than anything we have known hitherto and as Sagan pointed out Thatcher, uh, no matter what else you know, think about her and her politics, was is one of the few heads of state we can point to that had a science background. She was a research chemist with a chemistry degree from Oxford. Yeah, a weird thing to remember. Yeah, uh, in in the demon haunted world, Sagan brings this up because he's talking about science and politics uh, where they meet, and the idea here is that Margaret Thatcher, uh, you know, whatever else her her politics might mean or whatever you know other details regarding her place in history, she perhaps had an advantage in understanding these dire warnings coming from the scientific community because of her own scientific background. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it, it is not all that common to see world leaders, major political leaders coming from a scientific background. I think doesn't I think Angela Merkel has a scientific yes, background. Yes, I believe so. Well. She's one of the the few other ones you can easily point to. Yeah, but I was trying to think of other examples, and it come up very, very short. Uh, I, I mean, it, that is interesting, and I, and I'm not saying necessarily that one needs to be a scientist to be a political leader. I mean, th- that that also seems like a unreasonable demand, and and it's not necessarily true that scientific careers would provide all of the kind of skills you need to be a good political leader. But it seems like it would be good to have at least a higher proportion of people with scientific backgrounds involved in politics. I mean, it's strange to just like look at the professional backgrounds of people who become politicians and notice how uniform it is most of the time. I mean, at least in the United States, politics is overwhelmingly dominated by lawyers and people from business. Mm-hmm. You kind of wonder how different our politics might be if uh, there was a more representative sample of people from other fields, of people from the sciences, of teachers, of labor leaders and so forth uh, that all like became political leaders also. Yeah, I mean, at, at the very least, you want leaders who listen to trusted scientists. Mm-hmm. You, you, you know, you want scientists to, um, and, uh, and scientifically minded people to be in positions to speak to scientific topics and then have that be a part of of the, um, you know, the upper political consideration. And I don't think that's a controversial statement to make on a science podcast. Um, 
but uh, let's come back to this Outer Limits episode. So this came out in 1998, which curiously, uh, and this, you know, I don't know to what degree this is, uh, this is actually, um, uh, you know, essential, but it's curiously the same year that the rate of uh, average global surface warming began a slowing trend that lasted till 2012. Now, as Rebecca Lindsay points out on climate.gov, this really just meant that, quote, the rate of average global surface warming from 1998 through 2012 was slower than it had been for two to three decades leading up to it. But the big picture of long-term warming continued unchanged. Still, climate change deniers at the time took, uh, took what climate scientists described as a temporary pause or hiatus as proof that, quote, global warming stopped in 1998. Oh, yeah. I remember seeing that claim a lot floating around on the Internet. Yeah. So again, that might just be pure. You know, obviously, this this episode was probably you know written uh, you know prior to '98, and I don't know what the exact production history on on the script was. Uh, that it might just be uh, you know pure coincidence that it happened exactly that year, but maybe not. Who knows? I would tend to think coincidence because I I doubt that people. I mean, climate change was not as much of a salient issue or political controversy at the time, and there wasn't the same like period data to latch on to in denying it yet. Yeah. But the idea of calling it a pause or hiatus could be really kind of misleading. I mean, it seems yeah. like actually what I was just talking about goes both ways. It, it would be good, I think, to have more scientists involved in political leadership. But it would also probably be good to have more people who are experienced with rhetoric and messaging involved in science. Yeah, because I mean that honestly, yeah, that that's kind of confusing terminology to throw out there. And in even if you don't have an agenda, if you don't have, uh, you know, a, a dog in the hunt, and of course, as we'll discuss, everybody has a dog in this particular hunt. Um, you know, you could see how you might misinterpret that. Uh, but anyway, yeah, all, this this was uh, the the idea was pushed by some that this meant oh well, global warming has stopped, like it's over. Uh, you were freaking out over nothing. This, despite that, global warming as a human caused condition still saw nineteen. 1998 through 2012 as the warmest 15-year period on record at that time, with greenhouse gases climbing to new record highs, the oceans were warming, sea levels were rising, ice was melting. Now, as we've discussed on the show before, you know, part of this comes down to a misunderstanding, willful or otherwise, on how science functions. Science is not a tool that works or doesn't work and then maybe cast aside like a crooked drill bit or something that needs to be replaced. The part in To Tell the Truth about Chambers having gotten it wrong before certainly smacks of the, the common climate uh, denialism mantra of, but what about the, the warnings of the new ice age and other such criticisms, right? You know, th- th- there's a lot wrong uh, with with that approach, obviously, ranging from the treating, uh, you know, of all science and scientists, uh, regardless of area of focus, as kind of a monolith. Like, oh, you know, this is what science is doing. This is what the scientists are doing. And I found a scientist uh, that says otherwise, because that also gets into the cherry picking and, uh, you know, assuming that error and recalibration are not part of the scientific process. One of the real difficulties with scientific communication is that you can always make a kind of confusing reference to the past. Like you can find controversy on essentially any issue. Uh, you know, the, the, there's no scientific issue I can think of where 
through through the entire history of the awareness of the issue, all scientists have had it right and been on the same page about it. So if you're interested in generating the the idea of confusion or controversy about any particular scientific conclusion, and you want to make references to, well, when have people said different things about this issue in the past, you can always find something like that. And in some cases, uh, issue uh, the scientific consensus about issues develops and changes very rapidly. I mean, I think about the ways that um, for example, current recommendations about how best to battle the coronavirus, about mm-hmm. uh, masks and social distancing and all that stuff. People who are kind of uh, people who are opposed to following the current best guidelines about those things will make reference to what people were saying in the earliest weeks of the of the pandemic. You remember this, right? Like. Like initially, yeah. scientific guidelines were not recommending people wear masks. That changed yeah. very quickly. But- we did a very early episode uh, where we uh, about, about the coronavirus, where we 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 mentioned that. Yeah. Though I should also point out that we also drove home that you know we're recording this on such and such date at such and such point in this pandemic. Uh, be aware that that you know everything may change as this story develops. It can be a really frustrating thing. I mean, the evidence now for the effectiveness of mask wearing to slow the spread of the virus is very good. It comes from multiple kinds of studies, studies looking at the effects of mask mandates at the population level, studies looking at the effects of physical barriers on the propagation of droplets and aerosols in controlled environments, how it spreads between hamsters and things like that. The bottom line from all of this research up to now is that there's very good reason to wear a mask if you go out in a public setting or anywhere near people outside your household. But... No matter how much evidence accumulates in that column, there's always going to be this historical reference point where people can say, hey, wait a minute, like the experts weren't saying that at the beginning of March 2020. So how can we be sure that they're right now? Why is what scientists are saying about the coronavirus or about climate or anything now better than what they were saying in the past? And it can seem confusing, but for the most part, the answer is actually pretty simple, and it's that now we have better evidence. There's more evidence, more relevant evidence, better quality evidence. That's the difference. Yeah, this makes me think about the fact that science can be very susceptible to political weapons when those weapons are leveled at it. Uh, because science science is ultimately this thing that is that is taking place and analyzing, you know, the, the, the fundamental aspects of the larger world, the, the, the cosmos, whereas politics is very much a, uh, a condition of, of social dynamics. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the, these political weapons, these zingers and, and gotcha points and, you know, basically anything that might be used uh, from uh, by one political opponent against another, like those are things that are designed to work within a social context context for the most part, and to a certain extent within a legal context. Uh, but, but science is, is like the world beyond this domed uh, colony of, of law and society. And I wonder, now that I'm, I've said that out loud, I wonder if that's kind of the, the beauty of this, uh, this setting in this Outer Limits are, uh, uh, episode, because the, the people in it, the colonists, are literally living inside a bubble of their own construction, uh, you know, the, of their own design, and trying to evaluate threats that exist outside, like literally outside the sphere of their uh, immediate uh, domain. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more. And we're back. Now, of course, in this Outer Limits episode, um, you know, as, as, as we, we've pointed out before, uh, there's this stark difference between what's going on with Dr. Chambers and what's going on with us. Because 
well, it's just in the show, it's just Dr. Chambers preaching to a crowded room and making a case with difficult evidence, though climate change data is certainly complex. Uh, but but in our world, it is a case of overwhelming scientific consensus, um, it, it's especially as far as climate scientists are concerned. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. I mean, we've talked about the the consensus on this issue and and the studies measuring it in previous episodes. I think we talked about that in one of the episodes we recorded after you came back from uh, the World Science Festival in a previous year, mm-hmm. and, and we discussed uh, one of the panels about science communication and about climate change. But yeah, there's no doubt at all that almost all climate scientists or people with expertise in the relevant fields are on the same page with the broad strokes of climate change. It, it is a problem. It is majorly threatening. It is caused in large part by the products of human industry. And yet it can certainly feel at times like it's just one Dr. Chambers pleading with the rest of the colony because there is significant and, uh, and, and dangerous lack of commitment to combating the problem, especially in the United States, and a great deal of anti-science and anti-climate science worldview uh, is, is often found here, especially in places of significant political power. Yeah, the, the anti-science sentiment is extremely dangerous. Uh, like j- just this year in 2020, we've seen the results in real time um, uh, with the, the coronavirus as failure to listen to scientists and take advisories about mask wearing and social distancing seriously have led to outbreaks and surges that have cost human lives first and foremost, uh, but also cost time and money. Uh, you know, it can still be difficult to gauge such threats, but it's certainly a more, I think, readily understandable situation compared to climate change, which, you know, one of the issues there is, again, complex climate science, uh, dealing with, you know, uh, longer periods periods of time, uh, as opposed to everything happening within the, the space of a few months. Though at the same time, we are also living in a time of dangerous uh, climate alteration as we endure rising seas, intense hurricanes, and increased droughts and heat waves. It's perhaps more pronounced now than ever before, and, and not everyone has their head in the sand, certainly. According to a 2020 report from the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication and George Mason University's Center for Climate Change Communication, almost 6 in 10 Americans are either alarmed or concerned by global warming, which the authors pointed out as being a major shift. As for the rest, though... Well, researchers and thinkers have been exploring these questions for years. Again, we have, a, we, have, we have past episodes to get into this a bit. Why do we deny the evidence? You know, why, why deny um, climate change? Now, certainly there's much to be said for just how unpleasant the reality is. No one wants to be a part of a problem like this or to dwell on a future of mass destabilization, relocation, and and extinction. Uh, We as humans are, in many ways, just poorly wired to deal with threats of this magnitude and scale. Uh, We're better with the short term. Uh, But but, but what what are we ultimately to do? I mean, one of the things we've talked about in previous episodes about this is the idea that identity protective cognition plays in Mm -hmm. why people respond negatively to to climate science. And this is a thing that we should be sympathetic about. I mean, everybody engages in identity protective cognition. Everybody engages in forms of motivated reasoning on various issues to try to protect their, their picture of the integrity of their self and how they fit into a social system. So, uh, and th- this is one of the dangers of scientific issues becoming politicized is that once an issue becomes politicized, the social and identity connotations of the sides of that issue become more relevant than the evidence does. And unfortunately, this can happen really rapidly with issues that don't happen to have any 
particular like political values or implications attached to them inherently. Uh, I mean, there are examples. I was just thinking about how, do you remember how at some point this year, suddenly it became a political issue with a political valence, whether or not hydroxychloroquine was an effective therapeutic for COVID-19, which when you yeah. step back and think about that, that's it's like crazy. That That is not an issue that really has any particular political implications. It doesn't implicate any fundamental values. It just happened to get politicized because of who yeah. was talking about it, what ways and you know how that was appearing in the media. You know, if Donald Trump had come out and said said that it was not effective, it could have been politicized in exactly the opposite way. <laughs> so, right. you know, it's like weird how how totally contingent things like this can be. But unfortunately, once a scientific question gains political connotations, it can be very hard to take them off. They're just kind of stuck there. And people don't want to believe in things that they think of as beliefs inappropriate for a person such as themselves. You know, and and so that that's one of the real dangers. I mean, the best thing to do about science is to try to prevent scientific questions from acquiring a political connotation to begin with. You have to do your best to try to make sure that uh, that a, a scientific message or the communication of a scientific conclusion is not associated with anybody of any particular political affiliation. But that can be very hard to do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, like uh, issues can be asymmetrically politicized, right? All all it takes is basically one major political figure to to decide to make a scientific question a politicized issue, and you know they can usually do it. But again, in all this communication is key, uh, you know, and uh, and and a lot of this episode of the Outer Limits is about like trying to communicate um, uh, the nature of science to people that have their doubts, uh, that are denying uh, what's going on. Uh, so I, I looked at a 2020 paper uh, for a little more on this, uh, titled "Understanding and Countering the Motivated Roots of Climate Change Denial." This is by Gabriel Wong Parodi and uh, Irina Fegina, published earlier this year in. Current opinion in environmental sustainability. The paper focuses on communication approaches to reach climate change deniers uh, in peer-reviewed studies from the past two years, with a special focus on what the authors described as people engaged in, quote, motivated denial. This means the people in question have access to the facts, but they still deny them. Uh, on some level, they make a choice to deny the science and cling to another view of reality that flies in the face of scientific consensus, but is easier to accept. Yeah. And again, to be fair, I mean, obviously, I think people should accept the scientific consensus on climate change. But I think a lot of the people who deny it are not doing so like out of a conscious perversity, thinking like, I won't mm -hmm. accept the facts. I mean, the fact is that motivated reasoning changes how facts appear to us. Things that are perfectly reasonable to believe just suddenly don't seem plausible to you because of motivations you have. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, on one hand, there's the responsibility of what um, human uh, invoked climate change means. It means accepting your part of the problem. And then it also means accepting that the problem threatens much of the stability and normalcy that you hold dear. And furthermore, you may feel the need to speak out and act and so forth. And it can be easier, you know, on, on some level to simply live in denial. Like that is an easier mental construct uh, to uh, to erect in the mind as opposed to dealing with all of these additional changes uh, to the, uh, the, the world you've grown accustomed to. 
Now, Chambers does end up being accused of being an alien shapeshifter at one point <laughs> in this Outer Limits episode, uh, but he never reverses this charge on the colonists, uh, which is which is worth worth noting, especially because it ties in a little bit into what um, the authors here in the study uh, discuss. That I think they would agree that this was the right move. One of the key points. <laughs> what not in to climate, say? No, you're the aliens, <laughs> right? Well, yeah, essentially not to say say, oh, climate change deniers, you're a bunch of aliens. There's something wrong with you. You're you're, you're broken in some way. You know, like that, that's one of the key points in climate change communication uh, they, they point out is to is is not to dismiss uh, deniers outright, but to acknowledge their opinions and beliefs. And they they acknowledge that this can be difficult, obviously, but they point to four different strategies that that seem to show promise and, and or seem to work. OK, what are the strategies? All right. The first is reframing solutions to climate change as ways to uphold the social system and work towards its stability and longevity. Now, in The Outer Limits, Chambers does this, of course, by pointing out that if they don't act, the stability of the colony will be threatened. Um, if, if he could have, uh, you know, actually had an honest discussion with Murdoch, he might have told him, look, this will ruin your prospects of profits from the colony. It will endanger your power. It's going to threaten this home that you hold dear. Uh, you know, this is this is a threat to all the things uh, we we value here. Yeah. So I think this is saying, like, you know, to be factual in representing what the threats are, but to emphasize the kinds of threats that are particularly salient to people with a political identity who are more likely to deny climate change. So to use a Simpsons example, if you were trying to convince members of the Simpsons family not to make a foolish investment in a tobacco farm, you might appeal to Homer in particular by saying, if you do that, you're not going to have a budget for beer or to pay the cable <laughs> bill, right? You know, like you, yeah. you, you single out the issues that are actually most most salient to people. Yeah, I think a, a, a good example of this is we, we, we see this in the realization, for instance, that climate change is a national security issue as well as a purely environmental one. Which it it's certainly not just is, about, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's not just about saving the earth or saving the environment, but safeguarding things like our supply chains, etc. So, um, so, yeah, one of the ideas here is don't just, you know, the idea of like, we need to save the planet, like, you know, that's going to carry with it. I mean, that's true, uh, you know, but uh, but but that how does it need to be tweaked uh, to to uh, to meet the worldview of the, the person on the other side? And that gets into the, the second uh, piece of advice they, they have, and that's reducing the ideological divide by incorporating the purity of the earth rather than how we harm or care for it. So this is more about putting, I guess you could say, the hopeful spin on it and emphasizing our ability to make changes and perhaps even our responsibility to to look after the earth uh, that you know, is going to fall in line with various uh, religious worldviews uh, rather than just the shame point of realizing that we've done a lot of harm and that we need to change our ways. Now, the author's going to, to point out two other areas. One, uh, no, uh, Number three, rather, having conversations about the scientific consensus around climate change with trusted individuals. Now, I think that's easier said than done. Uh, uh, take outer limits, for example, Chambers is mistrusted. Uh, and, you know, who, who else are you going to talk to here? If you cherry pick your trusted individuals, um, you know, that can those trusted individuals can include climate deniers or people with without uh, perhaps with a, sometimes with a scientific background, but not uh, a scientific background in climate science. 
Uh, I mean, I think this ties in very much to what I was just talking about with uh, identity protective cognition. Like you, you, mm-hmm. you don't want to embrace a belief that you see as antithetical to people in your social group who have the kind of integrity that you value. And so, yeah, I think one of the best and most important ways to get around this is to show, hey, people like you, people who you socially identify with, they, they also agree with the scientific consensus here. And then the the fourth point they bring up is encouraging people to explicitly discuss their values and stance on climate change prior to engaging with climate information. So the idea with this one is that, quote, self-affirmation is challenged when people face climate change because it requires them to consider their contribution to the problem, which can threaten their sense of integrity and trigger self-defense. And and finally, you know, they say you want to stress solutions that match an individual's values and don't threaten their sense of identity or their way of life. Uh, now, of course, if we as we've discussed before, this also underlines the horror of politicization of climate change and the attempt to try and uh, and bake in climate change denial into a political worldview. Once a, something like this becomes politicized, it's difficult to unpoliticize it. Yeah. Lisa Friedman wrote an excellent piece on COVID and climate denialism for the New York Times earlier this month that touches on the work of John Cook, a research uh, assistant professor at the Center for Climate Change Communication at George Mason University and founder of the website Skeptical Science. Um, Cook argues that ideology and tribalism tend to come before facts and people's beliefs about climate change. And that means a lot of the power here falls to people of influence within an ideology. And that means that leadership is crucial to overcoming climate change denialism. And again, isn't that what we we see in this Outer Limits episode? Murdoch is the leader of the colony. And while he admits that he actually briefly believes Chambers or at least entertains the idea that Chambers may be correct, he otherwise works against him at every turn. And the people look to Murdoch. Furthermore, Murdoch, as a sort of head of state in the off-world colony, doesn't only argue against uh, rationally against Chambers, he also ultimately engages in more underhanded tactics, including the use of disinformation. Yeah, they, they try to personally discredit Chambers with, uh, with attacks on his, what I would say his character, but uh, attacks on his biology. Yeah, I would say character and biology. Yes. Yeah, the first character and then ultimately biology itself. Yeah. Um, if we look to our current situation in October 2020 with, with COVID and climate change, it, it's kind of interesting how, to tell the truth, forecast our current uh, uh, leadership situation. Um, so, so, so again, uh, this is one of those episodes, even though it came out uh, in the 90s, it still is, is very relevant today. Uh, according to Cook, um, however, only 10% of Americans are outright dismissive of the science on climate change. And that seems to cor- correlate well with the 12% of Americans who are not concerned about COVID. Friedman writes, quote, this means, he said, uh, referring to Cook, the solution lies in, uh, not in persuading those already steeped in science denial, but inoculating the other 90% of the public from scientific disinformation. He likened the challenge to eradicating polio, an incurable disease that was all but eliminated in the United States through vaccinations. In the case of climate and COVID, he said, that means using facts and research combined with vivid analogies to explain the techniques used to mislead the public. And this is one of the things that Cook does through Skeptical Science, which if you want to check out the website, it's just skepticalscience.com. He provides useful real-world analogies to counter climate denial arguments. And he also wrote an an illustrated book titled Cranky Uncle versus Climate Change, How to Understand and Respond to Climate Science Deniers. You know, I don't want to end on too dark a note here, but but I do 
seriously worry about because as as difficult as it is to prevent scientific issues from becoming politicized in the first place when you're just dealing with leaders, you know, trying to make sure mm-hmm. that like major media figures and politicians don't start injecting political valences and, and trying to get people to align politically around something that's not really a political issue. It's just a scientific question with a factual answer. Um, that's hard enough. It seems like nowadays things are going to be even harder than that because you essentially have the distributed capability through the internet and virality and social media to do the same thing, to politicize issues. I mean, I, I already see worrying signs of how uh, sort of like emerging out of the depths of the internet, you'll get weird conspiracy theories politicizing whatever vaccine we end up with for, for COVID-19. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, and to, to a wonderful extent, like one of the great things about a show like The Outer Limits is that essentially it's always about people having conversations about, uh, you know, science fictional threats. And 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 given that it's a you know short format, you have to boil everything down to a simple scenario, like two people trapped in a room, or in this case, uh, you know, one scientist speaking uh, to the the community in this colony. But of course, in reality, we have a far more complicated communication system. There's a greater number of players involved. There are different communication systems involved, uh, networks. The, the way that different voices become, um, uh, you know, more pronounced in our culture. It's it's uh, it's, it's Far more complicated than what we have in the Janus Five uh, example, uh, but but I think it works nicely to um, uh, still as an as an example of the, the the sorts of problems that we encounter as humans. I mean, I guess we've sort of been saying that one of the best outcomes, if we could enact it with scientific issues that have political ramifications, is to not allow them to become politicized in the first place. But if that's not really possible, you know, if you, you can't mm-hmm. prevent issue people from trying to politicize issues. I think the question is, what does the mental vaccine against the politicization of scientific issues look like? How how do you best plant that sort of like uh, that meme or that seed in somebody's brain that will grow into uh, grow into a sort of mental immune system that rejects these politicizations of scientific issues when it encounters them that, you know, so people know how to recognize when it's happening and stop it before it infects them. Yeah, that is the that is the the ongoing problem that uh, we're continuing to struggle with, and this is the point where we would have the uh, the narrator of the outer limits jump back in and nicely summarize the struggle that we've just witnessed yes. on the screen. But of course, the fallible humans failed in their attempt. To- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, we're going to go ahead and close out uh, this uh, volume of the anthology of horror, but we will be back with part five. Uh, Volume 5, when we will explore even more episodes from TV and film, horror, sci-fi anthology history, and discuss some of the, uh, the science and culture surrounding them. In the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Wherever that happens to be, we just ask that you rate, review, and subscribe if you have the power to do so. And if you want to find us uh, just really quickly, you can just go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That will shoot you over to the iHeart page for our website. And if you so desire, there's a toggle there for our store. And it just takes you to a T-shirt store where you can buy a shirt with a monster or our logo on it. 
I think they're trying to move those petrifying gaze shirts, uh, which have a wonderful design. Oh but... yeah, yeah. My my son my son did that one. I know I know he bought one. So oh, really? Um, so, yeah. Or, well, I bought one for him. So somebody bought one, but it's me. Uh, if you want to buy one too, uh, you can get it on everything: a sticker, a you know, a, what a shirt, bags. There's no telling. It's good stuff. Face mask. You can get a face mask with our logo on it. We're in a monster renaissance. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thank you.